Amen. This morning, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into uh, back to basics, and we're going to get into part two. The last, how many remember the last back to basics message I taught? Uh, it was a month ago, <laughs> or around a month ago. Uh, the, the thing is, you guys know uh, we've dealt with sickness, and we've dealt with all sorts of things. I want to, he wasn't here last week, but he is here this week. Please give Tim Thiesfeld a hand. Uh, when I am stuck, when I am, when I am stuck or sick, uh, sometimes I give, Gary, I give Gary a call and, and you know, let's do some testimonies and something like that. And, and that's always well and good. But, you know, I know that you guys want a message. And so uh, I call Tim. And Tim, I think when he sees my phone number and his phone goes, oh, boy, what now? It's Friday night and I don't want to talk to him. Uh, but uh, he's, he is quick if he has the availability to. He is quick to help out. And so we thank him for that. Tim, thank you very much. Uh, this morning, we're going to get into part two. Now, the first, the first part of Back to Basics, we talked about the Bible. Okay? We talked about uh, really clinging to it, letting it invade our lives, letting it, holding fast to it. How many have the Bible with you this morning? How many have a Bible with you? Raise it up. Good. If you have your phone or you have an iPad or something, raise it up, because that's, that's where our, most of our Bibles are now. Uh, we, we began a series based on the basics of what we believe. What are the basics of what we believe? And the reason we got into the series of the basics of what we believe is because I am, con- I am convinced that many people who call themselves Christians have no idea what they believe, have no idea about the basics of Christian faith. They have no idea about the basics of the Bible, the basics of the Trinity, the basics of the Holy Spirit. And so we want people to be aware because I believe there is a time coming very, very soon in this country where true Christians are going to be truly persecuted. And unless we understand as believers what we believe, many Christians or many people who call themselves Christians, I believe, are going to be led astray. We need to have a firm foundation this morning. Amen? How many know we need a firm foundation? How many know that firm foundation first is Jesus Christ, right? And then we want to grow and mature in our faith. We started with the truth of putting our faith and trust in the Bible. And I believe it's worth continuing this week and examining what the Bible is and the authority. Say authority. It has in our lives. What is authority? If, I was to say, if, I was to, if someone has authority over you, they have what? Power. Control, if influence, if somebody has authority over you, they are your boss, usually. How many, how many have, a, have, have a boss? How many have a boss? Jenny, you kind of have a boss. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's Bobby, right? Oh, boy. We're going to have an elder meeting there, Gary. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, how, how many have a boss? Raise your hand. Right? How many, they're in authority over you. They can fire you. You don't want them to. <laughs> Jenny's like, yes, I do. No. <laughs> no. Uh, they're an authority over you. It means they have influence, power, control over you and your life. I believe we have to understand what it means to have biblical authority. Right? What is biblical authority? What is the authority of God? And I'm not talking about the authority of a pastor. 
And pastor has some authority in people's lives, but we don't want to become manipulative with that. And I know plenty of pastors who have become manipulative with that kind of stuff. But when we talk about the authority, the authority I'm talking about is the authority of Scripture, the authority of the Bible. Is it the authority in our lives? And if it's not, why not? We're going to examine that in a little bit. The Bible contains how many books? We've gone over this before. Don't say it if you know it. Yeah, okay, then nobody's going to know it. Here's the thing. Okay, let's not have the two or three people that normally answer give it. Let's, let's uh, come over here to this side of the church. Mike, you said 61. Carrie, how many you think? Carrie, how many you think? Repeat what Carol said. 66 books of the Bible. Carrie's just drinking her water. She's ignoring me. A little ray of sunshine over there. 66 books, and they are bound together by a central theme. What is that theme? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller. 66 books bound together by Jesus Christ. And you say, Pastor David, how are they bound together by Jesus Christ? In fact, the theme of Jesus is not just found in the New Testament, it's found in the Old Testament. There have been many studies and sermons and preached and known as what was called the miracle of the scarlet thread. The scarlet thread, what is that? It's showing Jesus moving in and through every book of the Bible. And how does Jesus move in and through every book of the Bible? I want to look at that together this morning. Pastor Philip Nation, who was working with Lifeway, provided a, this powerful overview of who Jesus is. From Genesis to Revelation, this is going to take a little bit of time, but how is Jesus revealed? In Genesis, he's the creator and promised redeemer. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he is water in the desert. In Deuteronomy, he becomes the curse for us. In Joshua, he's the commander of the army of the Lord. In Judges, he delivers us from injustice. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he is all in one. He is the prophet, he is the priest, and he is the king. In 2 Samuel, he is the king of grace and love. In 1 Kings, he is a ruler greater than Solomon. In 2 Kings, he is a powerful prophet. In 1 Chronicles, he's the son of David that is coming to rule. In 2 Chronicles, he's the king who reigns eternally. In Ezra, he is the priest proclaiming freedom. In Nehemiah, he's the one who restores what is broken down. In Esther, he's the protector of his people. In Job, he is the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he is our song in the morning and in the night. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is our meaning for life. In Song of Solomon, he is the author of faithful love. In Isaiah, he is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he is the weeping Messiah. In Lamentations, he assumes God's wrath for us. In Ezekiel, he's the son of man. In Daniel, he's the stranger in the fire with us. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband even when we run away. In Joel, he is sending his spirit to his people. In Amos, he delivers justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, he judges those who do evil. In Jonah, he is the greatest missionary. In Micah, he casts our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. In Nahum, he proclaims future world peace we cannot even imagine. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he's the warrior who saves. In Haggai, he restores our worship. In Zechariah, he prophesies. He's 
prophesies as a Messiah is that's pierced for us. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness that brings healing. In Matthew, he is the king. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he's the deliverer. In John, he is God in the flesh. In Acts, he's the spirit who dwells in his people. In Romans, he's the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he's the power and love of God. In 2 Corinthians, he's the down payment of what's to come. In Galatians, he is our very life. In Ephesians, he's the unity. In Philippians, he's the joy. In Colossians, he holds the supreme position in all things. In 1 Thessalonians, he's our comfort. In 2 Thessalonians, he is our returning king. In 1 Timothy, he is the savior of the worst sinners. In 2 Timothy, he's the leader of leaders. In Titus, he is the foundation of truth. In Philemon, he is our mediator. In Hebrews, he is our high priest. In James, he matures our faith. In 1 Peter, our hope in times of suffering. In 2 Peter, he's the one who guards us from false teaching. In 1 John, he is the source of all fellowship. 2 John, he is God in the flesh. 3 John, he is the source of all truth. In Jude, he protects us from stumbling. And in Revelation, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords this morning. Amen? How many are ready to hear some preaching this morning? Amen? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He is coming soon. He is coming again. And he is one who will make all things new, including us. The Bible is first and foremost about Jesus always. It's about Jesus. It's about his love for his people. How many know the Lord loves you? How many know God loves you? Man, that's such a basic question. And people give basic answers. Man, how... Do you know God loves you? Why? He's patient with me. He's kind. Brings healing in my life. Puts grace on my soul. Right? I want you to think about that question this morning. How does God, why does God love me? Some people may be here thinking God doesn't love them. He does. He does. How do you know? Because he sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for your sins, for mine. Why would God love me? Why would God love me? I've done nothing to deserve his love. I mean, sure, I'm funny once in a while. And I'm good looking. Look at this shirt, man. You got fall colors going on today. And I'm humble. Oh, so humble. <laughs> and you guys know I'm joking, of course. But I think about it and go, man, God, what have I done to deserve your love? How often I fail. How often I mess up. How often Thoughts come in my mind and actions in my life that don't line up. You go, God, I failed again. Forgive me. And the Lord says, I got you. The Lord says, my blood covers you. I mean, God is good. He's only good. He's good all the time. 
You say, how can he be good when there's so much evil? How can he be good when there's so much tragedy? How can he be good when there's so many things happening around us we can't fathom or understand? We don't see. But I've seen time and time and time again where forgiveness was extended, where grace was extended, where mercy was extended, where it was not deserved. And I know that God is good this morning. Amen. In the last message, we saw that all Scripture, all of the Bible is given by God. It was given in two main ways. We talked about first, it's given by direct revelation. This is uh, by which the actual words of God are recorded by the prophets. The second is given by inspiration. Say inspiration. And this is by which the Holy Spirit guided the prophets as they wrote, and thus the prophets wrote what we call divine truth or Scripture. Every Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, says this. All Scripture, every Scripture is God-breathed. Say God-breathed. Man, I love that. That means that within the pages of Scripture, that the very breath of God is coming out. It is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking. We don't like to hear that, but it's true. For correcting, we also don't like to hear that one. That's the same thing. And training in righteousness. That the person dedicated to God or that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Say equipped. How many know we want to be equipped as believers? Sometimes in order for us to be equipped, we need correction, right? In order for us to be equipped, we need rebuke. Where does that come through? Well, sometimes it comes through your pastor. Sometimes, a lot of times, it comes through Scripture. If it comes, by the way, let me say it this way. If it comes through your pastor, it should be in Scripture. Amen? Right? I mean, there's some common sense stuff we can talk about. That's just, you know, the Bible's silent on. But we want the authority or the Bible to be the authority of our lives. All Scripture, every Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for proof, rebuke, correction, training in righteousness. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 20 says this. This is interesting because we th- think about where the Scripture comes from and the prophets. And it says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. That is to say, it didn't come through their mind. It came through the mind of God. So next slide. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through humanity or through human spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not just historical. It is also prophetic. Say prophetic. The prophecies concerning the Messiah. Now, there are around 64 prophecies in the Old Testament that refer to the Messiah, where he would be born, what he would come through, who he would come through, uh, things that would happen in his life, the way that he would die, the way, I mean, being rose from the dead. There's all sorts of different prophecies given in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah and who he is. There was a professor, and I, I'm sure you guys have heard this before, there was a professor in Texas. Uh, this, by the way, this comes from by, how many, know, how many know who Josh McDowell is? Uh, he wrote a great book called Beyond Belief to Conviction. And there was, in that book, it shows there's a professor in Texas that 
basically took math. How many are good at math? I'm not good at math. I'm not. I mean, I can add and subtract. I can divide and multiply. But Eli came home this last week with a math problem, and I had to call Kelly because I know she tutors kids in math. And I thought, Doug, I, I didn't get it. It's something about a polygon or some of the area of a poly something or other. And I was out. I was done. I could have, I just didn't get it. I looked it up on Google. Did not get it. So somehow a, a math professor in Texas came up with this equation. That for one person to fulfill just eight prophecies, just for one person to fulfill just eight of those prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. I don't know if you understand what that means, but that's one in 10. That's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. I can't even tell you what that number equals. It's huge. The way that they took it was this, because they were in Texas, so they said, okay, what would this equate to? They said if you took silver dollars and laid them across the state of Texas, this number would equal to not just a layer of silver dollars across the state of Texas, but layers that would equal up to two feet of coins. How many of you ever been to Texas? It's a big state, right? It's like a whole other country. Right? You guys remember that commercial? Anyway. Two feet all the way up, all the way up, and then you had to take Here's what, the, here's, what, here's what the analogy was. You would take one of those silver dollars and paint it red. And then throw it in there and mix it all up. And if one person walked into that pile of coins across the entire state of Texas, reached down and grabbed one coin, and it was that one coin, that would be the same odds. One in 10 to the 17th power the same odds of you winning the lottery. I'm just kidding. That's not how it, you guys flip now. That's all right. That joke did not fly, Bobby. Thankfully, because no Christians I know play the lottery. <laughs> Liars. <laughs> if you don't play, you can't win. I'm just saying. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just, there's a lot of, <laughs> oh man. So these are some facts and figures, and you look at those and go, wow, that's pretty interesting stuff. But the question remains, why for so many believers? I mean, we can see Scripture is inspired by God. It's the truth of God's Word. It's, it's, it's not through human will, but it's divine. We go, well, wait a minute. How can we see that it's divine? We see the prophecies. That was just eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies. How can people deny that's the truth of Scripture? How can people not see the Bible as an authority in their lives? There's three reasons why I believe Christians do not see the Bible as an authority in their life. Number one is this. You don't understand it. You don't understand it. It seems like a valid reason. It does. The Bible's, the Bible's a complex book. Very complex. There's simplicity in Scripture, but there's also a lot of complexity. So it seems like a valid reason. It's a book that's filled with these deep spiritual truths, right? 
It challenges you to, challenges you to live outside of your sin nature. It's filled with poetry and history and language that's not used today. Not being able to understand it seems like a valid reason, but it's not. It's simply not. The authority of the Bible doesn't depend on our ability to understand it. Now, that's a, that's a statement. The authority of the Bible, the truth of Scripture, does not depend on our ability to understand it. How many know, I, I know some math, I'm not, I'm not a dummy in all math, so how many know that 2 plus 2 equals, are you sure? 2 plus 2 equals, there was a professor, some Yahoo, some millennial moron, person, uh, person, if you're a millennial, please don't be offended, or be offended, it is what it is, said 2 plus 2 might not equal 4. What are you talking about? That common core, maybe, is what it is. The authority of the Bible doesn't depend on our ability to understand it. We understand that 2 plus 2 equals 4. But what if all of a sudden you found out 2 plus 2 does not equal 4, it equals 5? You go, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. No, because it's not true, right? 2 plus 2 will always equal? 1 plus 1 will always equal? Oh, good, you guys are freaking crazy. Let's see. Uh, yeah, I was going to do a math problem, but I can't do it in my head, so it's all right. The authority of Scripture, God's Word, doesn't depend on our ability to understand it. First Peter 1, 10 through 11 says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who predicted the grace that would come to you searched and investigated carefully. With greatest care, it says. They probed into what the person or the time of the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified beforehand or pointed to when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would come. What does this mean? It means that even the prophets, as they are writing down the Scripture, did not fully understand what God had them writing down. Even the prophets, as God is giving it to them, they were simply God's messengers. And often the great truths that they wrote down were too profound for them to understand. Paul said, and we talked about this before, Paul said we see through a mirror dimly, right? It's not clear yet. Someone once asked this, would God punish a man for failing to understand the Bible's doctrines? The answer is this, no. We are not punished because we understand, we cannot understand the mysteries of the Bible. We're not punished because of our lack of understanding. We are punished because of our unbelief. Because of our lack of faith in Christ. Our lack of faith in God. You know, I had a struggle. My struggle is... Uh, for years, I struggled with specific parts of Scripture. I did. I wrestled with it. Specific parts of Scripture, I went, God, I can't wrap my head around this. And I, if you know me, I, I, I like to investigate. I like to understand. I like to, I like to know what it is. I like, to, I like to be able to wrap my head around it, Carol. Right? We want to understand things. 
But there was a specific part of Scripture that I could not wrap my mind around. Thankfully, at the time, I was reading a book. And in that book, it's called The Case for Faith. It's a phenomenal book. We did a study on it last year. And in that book, it talks about Billy Graham and how he, too, had struggles with the Bible and, and, and not truly understanding everything. He had, he had struggles about the things that happen in this world. War and poverty and crime and all the things it seems we can do nothing about. He said that he came to a crossroads in his faith where he was either going to leave the ministry as a whole, uh, altogether or he was going to move forward in the grace of God. And he said he was up one night and he, was just, he couldn't sleep. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially said, I just chose to simply believe. I just chose to simply go, you know what, God, I don't understand it all. I can't figure it all out. I'm not going to understand everything. But I put my trust in you. I put my faith in you. I put my understanding in you. In faith, believing that someday I'll get it. But I don't have to now. For a lot of people who are intellectually minded, you want, you know, if you're academically minded or intellectually minded, you, you want to understand all the different mysteries of the, of the faith, mysteries of the Bible, mysteries of God. I understand that mindset. But I came to this place in my faith, and I read this account of Billy Graham, and, and I began praying. And this thing that had bothered me, I kid you not, probably not for months and maybe years, it got to a point to where I, I said, I believe I need to leave ministry. I need to leave because I just, I, I don't, I can't wrap my head around it. And I had to stand there or sit the house praying, and I just said, all right, Lord, I have to be okay with not understanding but putting my trust in you. I have to be okay with not totally understanding, but putting my faith in you. Why? Because the Bible is the authority in my life. If the prophets themselves didn't understand all the great truths that they taught, the aspects of divine revelation that they taught. It was beyond their capabilities. And many times it's beyond ours. Mysteries where I just go, man, God, I want answers. And God goes, just wait. Just wait. Put your trust in me. The answers will come. Maybe not until eternity. Maybe not until you cross over. But they will come. So the first reason people don't see the authority, the, God, uh, the Bible as an authority is, one, they don't understand it. We don't need to understand everything. We need to put faith and trust in God. Number two, reasons people don't see the, the, the Bible as an authority in their life. I haven't seen the Bible work for me when I need it to. First Peter 
verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 12 through 13 says, They, the prophets, were shown that they were, not ser- that they were serving not themselves but you in regard to the things now announced to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things angels long to catch a glimpse of. Therefore, get your minds ready for action to be fully sober and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Say, God is God. We are not. God is eternal. We are not. We are mortal, right? We have a beginning and an end. Now, our end leads to a new beginning, praise the Lord. But we are limited by this pesky little thing right now called time. How many know time sometimes moves quickly and sometimes it moves slowly? If you're in the middle of something, it moves slowly. Sometimes. Maybe keeping busy helps it move quickly. Doreen, would you say that time has gone by quickly or slowly? Seems quicker now, right? I think I'm 40, I'll be 41 this year. And I think I I see Facebook memories pop up all the time about the kids and pictures of the kids and stuff. And I just go, where'd the time go, Steve? Where'd the time go? So quickly. You are going to wake up and it's going to be 30 years later. And you're going to say, where'd the time go? We live in this pesky little thing right now called time. We are limited by it. However, God doesn't operate based on our timeline. He operates based on his. Right? God doesn't always operate based on our timeline. He he operates based on his. We live in a culture, how many know, that demands instant gratification. Instant gratification. Why? Well, here's, here's, a, here's a reason why. How many have your phones with you? Nobody has their, who, Who's the phone with them? Raise your hand. You got your phone with you? You can get almost any answer to any question, including math problems, on Google. Or what's the other one called? There's Yahoo. What's the? Is it DuckDuck? What? Goose? Duck, duck, goose. You're playing, playing duck, duck, goose up there, Carol. Uh, duck, duck, go. There's all sorts of these different search engines where you can find the answers to things instantaneously. And how many know when we don't get what we want when we want it, we're going to throw tantrums, right? How many, how many ever been in Walmart and some kid throws a tantrum? Come on, you heard him screaming down the aisle. If I'm in the aisle over, I say, shut up. Come on, Steve. Steve has been with me at Walmart. He knows how it goes. People say, don't say shut up. My mom. My mom doesn't watch these, so it doesn't matter. Maybe she does. I don't know. My mom, I, I, we, were at, we were at some family thing, and I said something. I said shut up because it's not really for us. It's not really that big a deal. For some people it is. I understand. That's great. But my mom goes, don't you say that. We don't say shut up in this house. I was like, since when? I've been told to shut up my entire life. Never listened, but, you know, that's how it goes. In a culture where we demand instant gratification, we say, God, I want it now. I want it now. There's a commercial for a credit card years ago. It was, uh, uh, what's the song? I want it all, I want it all, I want it now. Yeah, there you go. And, and so the, this is the song running through the commercial, and it's about a credit card. I'm like, well, they're telling you exactly what you, you, if you want it, you can get it now. 
One of the simple truths that I believe that we need to understand as Christians is the power of delayed gratification. The power of delayed gratification. This this is a totally separate sermon that I'm not going to get into right now. But let me say this. Prophecies in the Bible, in some cases, were hundreds of years after they were made before they were fulfilled. So the prophets that made the prophecies many times did not live long enough to see them fulfilled. Some of the prophecies in the Bible will not be fulfilled until the coming day of judgment. One minister said this, it is foolish for a man to reject a revelation because it does not fit into the local circumstances of his short life. We don't know what's going to happen. I could, I mean... You talk about the the fragility of life. You talk about how fragile we are in our lives. That, you know, I I was in the hospital for five days with the corona and and going through treatment and all this stuff. And you think about the fragility of life. You think, God, what if I'm not here? It's my wife and kids, and now they have to move forward and move on. And what happens with the church? And what happens with my friends and family and all these things. You think about the fragility of life. Faith in God compels us to believe that God's revelations embrace the entire period of humanity, not just us, not just what we experience, right? If we're getting back to basics, we have to move on to this next point, and this is a important one, and I believe it's maybe the, the most used reason why Christians don't understand or use the Bible as their authority. Number three is it interrupts my internal morality. It interrupts my internal morality. I like this article that was written by a Christian pastor. It said this, among the most popular messages of our society today is the proclamation of follow your heart. Follow your heart. As long as you follow your heart, you'll be happy, Braxton. Just follow your heart. I'm sure they write songs about it now. I don't know any of them. I'm not going to sing them for you. But follow your heart. The culture has conditioned us to place a very high value on our own wants and desires on our emotions. In fact, we are encouraged to base all of our major life decisions and daily lifestyle choices upon how I feel. Don't know what to do? Just listen to your heart. Actually, that's a song. Listen to your heart. You know, That's a song, right? I don't know all the words, but that's all right. Just listen to your heart. Do what feels right to you. This advice, advice I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's children's movies, songs, media, everything. Just listen to your heart. Follow your heart. As long as you follow your heart, you can't go wrong. Every Hallmark movie in the world is just follow your heart. We're, yeah, J- John's not here today, but he watches those movies. He knows. You guys know that John McMurtry watches Hallmark movies, right? In case you didn't know. It's, on, it's online now. Follow your heart. It's interesting because God gives us completely different directions 
when it comes to our heart and our emotions. Proverbs uh, 28, 26 says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? As attractive as the follow your heart message is, as attractive as it may seem, adopting this mindset is toxic to our spiritual lives. It is absolutely toxic to us. To follow your heart, your heart will deceive you. Your heart will lead you astray. When we allow our emotions and whims to lead us, we become subservient to our feelings rather than the word of God. When we are subservient, when we see our feelings and our wants and our emotions as the authority in our life over God, following our heart cultivates an attitude of selfishness rather than surrender. Why? Because I'm just doing what I want to do. I just want to follow my heart. And so we adopt this attitude of it's all about me. It's all about my feelings. It's all about my emotions. And God says your heart is deceitful. It's wicked. Why? Because you truly have not given your life over to Christ. Because you truly have not made God and the Bible the authority in your life. We cannot become the bondservants of Christ if we are controlled by our feelings. Elizabeth Elliot is a famous missionary whose husband died on the mission field. She wrote this, and I love this. Listen to this carefully. The difficulty is to keep a tight rein on our emotions. They may remain, but it is not they who are to rule our actions. They have no authority. Our feelings, our emotions have no authority. A life lived in God is not lived on the plane of feelings, but of the will. I'm going to make a decision to not follow my feelings in this matter. I'm going to make a decision to follow the word of God. Why? Because we have free will. We have the choice to follow the word of God or not. And when we choose our feelings over the authority of Scripture, we are telling God who is in control. Paul referred to the law, the Old Testament law, as a guardian or a tutor. In Galatians 3, verse 24 through 27, it says, or, well, let's go through 25. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer on, under a tutor. This is interesting. We're no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the guardian. That means we're no longer under the law. Amen? Somebody say amen. Come on. We are free. We have freedom. We are free to do what we want. But keep reading. Verse 26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ. Having faith in Christ is not simply saying a prayer of belief, but being baptized into Christ. Being covered by Christ. Being overwhelmed by Jesus. A pastor wrote this, and it's worth reading. It says, on the day of Pentecost in 31 AD, in the first inspired sermon of the New Testament church, the apostle Peter spoke to Jerusalem to several thousand people after which they became convicted for their part in killing the Messiah and killing Jesus Christ. 
Thousands asked Peter and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, here is Peter's opportunity to tell them that all they needed to do was believe. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, good question. Just follow your heart. That's not what he said. Just believe. That's also not what he said. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter proclaimed wonderful news that they could be forgiven of their sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But for this to occur, occur, he insisted on two points. One is repent. The other is be baptized. To repent means to turn from your sin, to go the other direction. It doesn't mean, I'm sorry, Lord, please forgive me, and then you go right back to it. To repent means I am turning away from and never going back to. If you had been there listening to Peter, grieving over your part in Christ's death and wanting to change your life and receive forgiveness, what would you have done? Would you have argued with Peter? I won't repent. I don't want to be baptized. Those are works, and, and I don't have to earn salvation anymore. Well, of course no one can earn salvation, but a willful disobedience against God's direction or instructions is a sure sign that you have not fully repented. When I am in willful disobedience to God, it shows where my heart is. When we are in willful disobedience to God, it shows God where our heart is. Now, I want to make sure there's clarity here true clarity. Water baptism is an ordinance of the church. Okay? It's the same way we see communion, which we're going to take in a little bit. Meaning that we are directed to do it as a testimony of God's grace and new life in Christ, but it is absolutely not necessary for salvation. Okay? The thief on the cross next to Jesus had no opportunity for baptism, but through faith in Christ, he was saved. Amen? This is evident. Jesus tells him he will surely be with him in paradise. I love that. He repented of his sins and he recognized Christ as God. Without repentance, there is clearly no path for salvation. I would dare say, and I really do believe, that number three is the reason above all why we don't see the Bible as an authority. It has clearly defined definitions of sin and wrong in our life. Now I'm going to know the Bible talks about sin. Bible talks about hell. Bible talks about wrath. The grace of God, yes. The mercy of the Savior, yes. Rainbows and puppy dog tails, sometimes. But a lot of what Scripture is, is directing us away from that which destroys us. Sin. Away from that which destroys us, our own feelings and emotions. You say, Pastor David, are you talking about trying to live a perfect life? No. How many know we, we don't live perfect lives? Nobody's perfect, right? That's a classic saying. We're not perfect. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about those. Listen, how many know there's times where, like, you, you, well, let's just say, uh, Doug, you might be hammering something. You got a hammer, you got a nail there. You hammer something. How many have ever been there where you're hammering something? 
and you slip and you hit your thumb instead of the nail. Anybody been there? Did you say praise the Lord? Hallelujah. No, you didn't say that? Okay. How many, how many ever just had a bad day? You woke up on the wrong side of the bed, right? And you woke up and then you were rude to somebody. And you, weren't, you shouldn't have been, it wasn't good, but you just had a bad day, and so you re- reacted rude to someone. Listen, those aren't good things, and we should be aware of those things, and we should fix them. But I'm talking about big stuff here. I'm not talking about small little things that happen. I'm talking about big stuff. There's people who call themselves Christians, but are only living according to their own desires. You can't claim Christ as Lord and then defiantly refuse to listen to his word. You may believe, but having faith isn't just belief. It's trusting God in his word, doing your best to live your life accordingly. Will we mess up? Yeah. I'm thankful for grace. Thankful for the cross, right? I am thankful for mercy. Amen. Hey, I am thankful for Jesus this morning. Amen. How many are thankful for Jesus this morning? Are you thankful for his grace and his mercy in your life? Amen. If you are, please stand this morning. Jenny, if you would come and play. How many are thankful for Jesus? Why? Because we talked about him dying on a cross, but we haven't talked about him rising from the dead. I don't worship a dead man this morning. I worship one who is alive and powerful and glorious. Amen? We lift him up. We glorify him in this place. Before we get into communion, I want to give everybody an opportunity. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. You may be here this morning and as you were listening to this message you began to feel like this is about me the Holy Spirit is speaking to you you may be here and and you should know that it's God's grace reaching out it's the mercy of God reaching out, it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you urging you to repent urging you to turn from your sin, to recognize God as the authority in your life, to renew your faith in Christ. For some, to make faith in Christ the new thing in your life, to make the Bible the authority of your life. If that's you this morning, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or to come forward or anything, anything like that. This is one of the most personal things a person can do. And so if that's you, between you and God, I want you to repeat this prayer. Dear Lord, forgive me. I have been trying to live under my own authority. I have not truly made you Lord of my life. Lord, I repent of my sin. Bring me under the authority of your word. Lord, teach me and help me grow and mature. I thank you for your mercy and your grace in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.